All right, I'm going to try to keep this brief because we burned through a ton of story last time, and it's a lot to get through. So quick recap from the previous episode. We killed a bunch of demons underground because that's where we find all of our demons these days. We found a celestial sponsor, I guess you could say. And we went to a quarry, got shown around a bit, and found evidence that the head quarry foreman guy type person is in league with demons. And then we came back to the Crooked Lantern establishment and passed out. So, in the last session, what we did was, first off, Cal uh, Idon uh, could not be roused from his slumber. He, apparently, he got super drunk when we got back to the tavern and just had a massive hangover that lasted for a good while. And the rest of the party, well, they, they knew he was a big boy and they didn't want to disrupt his beauty sleep. So they just let him sleep. Don't worry. They checked. They made sure he was still breathing. So anyway, it's the next morning. They've gotten back together, you know, there, uh, there at the tavern. Uh, Cecil kind of fumbles around with this crying stone that Varen Camry gave them. He's not really sure how to use it, but he figures out how to use it. Uh, they get in touch with Varen, and they inform him about the demonic wax seal that they found uh, out there at the quarry, and that's of the demon prince Bastet. Varen's super interested. And he tells them, okay, you know, we're going to meet up later that night a few blocks south in an abandoned warehouse. Then he hangs up. After that party, they start debating about what they should do. Should they try to track, track down this quarry foreman because he wasn't there when, while they were there? But, you know, they don't exactly have a whole lot of time. You know, this quarry, it's a good distance away. They can't just pop out, check it out, and then come back and still make their rendezvous with their celestial sponsor. You know, and on top of that... Ty, the sorcerer, he's a little, you know, skeptical, I guess. Good quality to have when you're dealing with demonic and celestial forces. You know, he's wondering, you know, is this guy really on the up and up? Could he be corrupted? Could he be in league with the demons? You know, for all they know, he could be leading leading the whole operation. The trouble, of course, is that, well, as a celestial, Varen's just way above their pay grade. You know, they, they couldn't take him in a fair fight, I mean, it's kind of like, uh, like, like, a, like an insect trying to, you know, kill a full-grown man. Yeah, like a little ant. It's not going to work out well for the ant. So, uh, so the the group kind of goes three ways. Cecil he decides to head to the Temple of Veronius and seek some divine guidance about Varen. And as a <clears throat> So he goes there, and it takes him a few hours of praying at one of the at one of the shrines that they have set up there. Uh, but eventually, he gets a good feeling, you know, confirming about meeting with Varen. Uh, so, you know, he feels good about that. Leaves a donation and heads back to the tavern. While Cecil's off doing his his pray, praying stuff, uh, our our favorite miscreants, Ty American Moonstar, they decide to scout out the warehouse just to be on the safe side. Uh, when they when they find the place, it's definitely worn down, abandoned, you know, definitely not being used by any, by anybody. And they sneak in, you know, Ty makes him himself and Merrick invisible, Moonstar goes into rat mode and sneaks in. And they can tell that it definitely used to hold textiles, uh, there's a few broken down looms, you know, some textiles that, you know, just got abandoned. Uh, and there's definitely signs of uh, movement there, 
you know, people having been there, footprints in the dusty floor, that kind of stuff. Uh, so they search around the bottom level. There's not a whole lot there. On the second floor, uh, they take a look around. Merrick takes a look around, finds a few offices. Uh, you know, the, uh, the first and third, not a whole lot there. They're pretty stripped down, bare bones. But the second one was locked, and it takes him a couple of tries, but he does manage to open it. And he finds that's kind of left like it was when the place was operational. There's a desk in there, had a few personal mementos, like a uh, like a little dragon statue. And based on the papers he's shuffling through, it looks like the place was owned by someone named Dimitri Trayward. Uh, the The surname kind of rings a bell with Merrick, but he can't quite put his finger on it, what, what it means. Uh, as he's going through the papers, uh, he catches one of them catches his eye. It's about a boat shipment of some some raw materials, and specifically, it's the signature on it that stands out to him. Uh, he's, he's what sta- what stands out to him is that it looked the first part of the signature is scratched out, you know, and he could tell that it's definitely, you know, what was starting to be written was not the name Dimitri Trayward. It kind of makes Merrick a little bit suspicious that this Dimitri may not be who he actually claims to be. You know, that's why he screwed up his name at first, just reflex. Uh, so he pockets it, pockets uh, that, that little tidbit for later and uh, leaves the office there. And in the meantime, you know, Ty, Moonstar, they've been taking a look on the first floor, but just haven't found anything, you know, besides that, the fact that there's a back entrance to the place. And that's it. So they wrap up and they head back to the tavern. Then uh, the last uh, the last guy that was running around here was Gesh. And Gesh deciding that, you know, he wasn't the praying type, and also he wasn't the sneaky type, uh, decides that he wants to go back to, he wants to go off and find that fancy casino that Ty got chased out of the other day. Of course, you know, he's wearing plate mail, you know, plate mail armor, and he's a, kind of a gruff warrior, and he doesn't really have anything fancy to help him blend in. So he finds a, you know, clothing shop there that would help him blend in a little bit better. Definitely high-end. And, of course, he walks in and says, make me look like a high roller, because I am. And, you know, the attendants there, they start working with him, and, you know, they're able to get him get him a nice a nice red and black outfit that complements his, uh, we'll call him dimensions, <laughs> uh, nicely. And, you know, get him fitted and, you know, get the, get the work done. And, you know, he's actually looking pretty sharp. You know, for a walking lizard guy. Uh, I guess she goes into the casino and you know, immediately is treated like a high roller. Uh, he even gets a uh, a wizard as his guide. You know, kind of showing him around, explaining you know, the different games that they have there and all that. I guess, uh, you know, kind of sizes up the wizard, seeing if he could take him in a fight. But he pretty quickly realizes that the wizard is, well way above his pay grade. <laughs> he he wouldn't be able to take this guy on his best day right now. But uh, the security is, you know, very prominent. Kind of there more for show than anything. It's meant to scare off anybody that's looking to rob the place. And, you know, the place is uh, kind of a joint ownership between the Notaries Guild and the House of Coin. No single po- person owns a place. And the investors, they like to keep their involvement on the quiet side. Uh, Gesh notices the uh, the vault there and asks about getting a tour of it. And, of course, his wizard guide says, well, you know, if you don't actually have anything to deposit there, we're not going to take you over there. 
but you know explains that yes, it's very secure. They've never been robbed. That kind of that kind of stuff. Gesh is of course you know kind of looking around trying to figure out how he could rob the place blind because this is Gesh we're talking about. He's obsessed with money. So he thinks of his guide for the time and says he's ready to blow some money, which you know quite naturally makes the casino guide happy. And you know, so he sells into uh, to a game of dice, and it's uh, 200 gold pieces minimum buy-in. So he puts down 300, and everybody everybody else at the table, <laughs> well, they kind of chuckle a bit and say, well, you know, it's a it's a little small, but you know, we can start slow this round. And uh, well, Gesh makes one roll of his dice and immediately loses all of it, realizing that he has not a ton of money left over. <laughs> he uh, thinks table for the good time and leaves. <laughs> and uh, as he's walking away, you can hear all the other players snickering at him because he's poor and all. And they start laying out bets of, you know, a thousand, twelve hundred gold pieces as he leaves. And, you know, Gesh on his way out, he realizes that there's just a ton of money being thrown around here. Like, it's nothing. It's just ridiculous. It blows his mind. And, you know, he starts, you know, looking around, he kind of realizes that not all the spectators are actually spectators, that probably a fair number of them are actually guards in disguise. And he realizes that, you know, he's definitely not going to be, be able to take out a place like this, like, like this by himself. So he heads back to the tavern. Uh, so it's been a few hours now, getting into the afternoon, everyone meets back, and... Gash, Merrick, and Ty all sit down to talk about the casino. And Ty starts floating the idea that, hey, you know, it might just be better for someone to, might be, be might just be better for them to rob somebody on their way to the casino rather than robbing the casino itself since, you know, at most, you know, uh, alone, a, a single person might have a couple of guards rather than a whole establishment working against them. And, you know, they keep on throwing around ideas. Uh, in the meantime, there at the tavern, uh, Gruffer, he's having a fantastic time. You know, he's getting charged with money like he never imagined. So, he's having a great time. Uh, eventually, the day passes, and the party heads south to the abandoned warehouse to meet Baron Camry. And, you know, as they approach, there's this guy, very hush-hush, you know, cloak and dagger kind of stuff, black garb, opens the door, beckons him in. They get inside, Baron's there waiting for him. Uh, and, you know, there's about a half a dozen other people there as well. Varen doesn't waste any time, gets straight down to business, asks for the wax seal, they hand it over, takes a look at it, and, you know, you know, the the group confirms that, yes, it was found at the quarry's foreman's office. And that's enough for Varen to, for you know, for his suspicions, to say that, yes, there's definitely some demonic influence over the masonry guild. But his worry is that's not enough evidence for the city council. Uh, he wonders if they might be able to plant something on a high-profile guild member, something that, you know, at least temporarily bring down their, you know, their power and position in, in a scandal. You know, uh, a more drastic option would be if they could organize all the clerics and paladins in the city together, they could wage a holy war. But, you know, when you start talking, start talking about things like war, it tends to get really messy really fast, you know, collateral damage, all that good stuff. Uh, the other option would be if they could disrupt the entire supply chain of the guild, like getting the masonry guild to stop their shipments altogether temporarily. You know, maybe they could you know, uh, plant a big shipment of drugs, you know, with one of their shipments to, you know, to bust them for a while. 
After they discuss a bit more of the party, you know, they kind of settle on the idea of returning to the quarry. They want to get their hands on Astenius, the foreman, you know, figure out what other information he can give up about how high up the demonic influence goes here. Uh, Varen likes this idea, and to assist him, he blesses each of their weapons, making them magical, uh, giving them extra damage, da damage it when they're fighting demons. Now, this works for everybody. Well, everyone that has weapons to fight with. So, you know, Cecil, Merrick, Gash. Uh, not Ty or Moonstar because, you know, they, their usefulness is more magic-based. Uh, Varian says he'll look into some other stuff later. And, of course, uh, the, the other poor guy that's being left out here, uh, Cal Edon, is still passed out, hungover from drinking so much. So his axe is still not magical. He's probably going to be pretty pretty jealous when he finds out. Uh, they, you know, the party asks Varen, you know, you know, what sort of demons they could probably expect to fight. Um, he says they'd probably be most likely to find chain demons, which are pretty, uh, pretty nasty. Uh, Armonites, uh, rocks, those are kind of large bird-like demons. Um, and he says, you know, above all, if they run into one of the demon princes, they need to book it immediately. But these de demonic princes, they're way, way outside of their league. So they conclude their business, go back to the tavern, and they find that uh, Greffer's not in his usual spot, you know, serenading the uh, uh, the place. Uh, Moonstar talks to the bartender, who just kind of points him over in the direction of the stables, and so the party hustles out there to find out what's going on, and they find Aaron and Greffer talking with a very familiar face, Sigmund Veritas. Veritas says, you know, he's been hearing rumors about uh, about the party there, and he likes their success that they've had in, you know, fighting off demons in the city. And, you know, he definitely, you know, he confirms that, yeah, the Masonry Guild is under a lot of suspicion. In particular, something that he wanted to pass along was that there's a very large shipment of obsidian coming in from a quarry, from the, uh, from a quarry in the far north in about two weeks. Uh, it's coming with a big escort, so this isn't something that the, the group can take head on. Uh, and it's broken up into three separate shipments, so they're about two days apart, each of them. And the suspicious thing about this is that the the, the shipment is marked as just kind of a general shipment to the Masonry Guild. There's no name listed as who's receiving it. And Veritas doesn't really have anything in particular in mind with this shipment. I mean, ideally, you know, he'd like if the party could find someone in the shipment who could provide him more information about what, the, what it's for, where it's going, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, they discuss a few ideas, maybe, you know, planting some drugs there on it to, you know, to shake things up, put the stuff in lockdown. And Veritas says, well, you know, I do happen to know quite a bit about a lot of things. If you need, you know, drugs, you know, the some red, hand, red hands down by the docks there, they have a lot of sprack there that you know, an entrepreneurial group of adventurers could probably take off their hands pretty easily. And in the course of their discussion, they bring, they talk about uh, Astenius comes up, and as a, you know, Veritas being a man of means and information, you know, knows exactly where he lives, the layout of his house, the pattern of patrols of the guards over, over the estate. Um, he, you know, he tells them, yeah, Astenius is back in town, he's leaving for the quarry in the morning. And, you know, the party talks about it, you know, and they said, hey, you know, let's send Merrick and Ty in to infiltrate, find it, if they can, see if they can find out any more evidence, and if not, we can always catch him on his way out of town towards the quarry, 
snatch them, interrogate them, get more information out of them. Uh, Veritas sends a, a courier about an hour later that has all the documents that they need for his estate, where it's at, the patrols, that sort of stuff. And <clears throat> on their way over, they give Varen a heads up just to let him know, hey, you know, we're, we, you know, we found some more information about this guy. We're going to take take a look at. And he gives us thumbs up for it, or claws up. I'm not sure how that works with Dragonborn. Anyway. Uh, they get to the estate and they find, you know, a lot of al alarm spells naturally, and you know there's a lot of guards going in. But uh, they decide just to send to send a Thai American, you know, with invisibility, and get him in. Merrick is able to pick a lock. You know, it's a little touch and go there. He's having some confidence issues with making that happen. At one point, they have to hide around a corner as the guards making his rounds. But since they're invisible and they stand very, very, very still, you know, they don't get busted. And the the window that they snuck in through, it, it's kind of like a museum room. You know, lots of uh, kind of trophies of different different things, you know, uh, blades, amulets, that kind of stuff. And, you know, they decide to keep going, maybe see if they can find Astenius's personal office. And they do. I mean, it takes a little sneaking around. And as they, as they dig through it, uh, Ty finds, uh, you know, this amulet that's behind one of the books on display. Uh, he doesn't know what the sigils etched on it means, but figures it's important. Uh, he also finds a sealed letter with the same symbol from the wax seal that they found at the quarry. And they decide, yeah, this definitely connects Astenius to the demons. And, you know, the, and, but they don't find anything else really of, uh, of importance there. Just kind of... Mm, nondescript stuff, I guess. Typical stuff. Uh, they check out... <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, they check out the museum room again. They just want to see if they can find anything else there. And they spot a crazy-looking katana. Uh, Ty, and Ty realizes that it's uh, a really special one called a Kyra Jiridin. And as far as he knows, you know, it, it was a, you know, from an ancient desert kingdom where... These blades were were uh, created and developed to work in bloodlines, uh, you know, for to pass down from one you know one guard to another to protect to protect the throne. Uh, he knows that it can curse its user, but he you know he he, he thinks that he can figure out a way to break the curse so that you know anybody can use it. But and think about stealing it, but they decide to hold off right now because they don't know. What you know, what alarm spells might be on it, and but as they talk about you know maybe checking out the library, trying to find some other stuff, they realize that you know the you know they don't have much time to still be invisible, and they kind of say screw it, uh, grab the katana which does not have an alarm spell on it, and uh, they magic their way out of the estate. Uh, Cecil, when he sees the blade, just gawks over it because he knows it's history too. He personally believes that the blade is connected for it to its usage, defending the throne of this ancient kingdom, ancient desert kingdom. He doesn't think it's connected to bloodlines, but there's definitely a lot of debate about this, about what it's used for, what the intent was. It doesn't help that the this desert kingdom's been obliterated for quite a while, so nobody really knows. Uh, but they know they definitely would need a lot of magic power to, uh, to remove the curse. Uh, so 
Tyne Merrick, they show the rest of the party the sealed letter. Um, they look at the amulet, and that's when they recognize it as an amulet of height alignment. Uh, so that they definitely think Astenius was using it to hide his true nature. They at this point they're really thinking he's a demon. And so they they give Varen a call. They update him about the letter and the amulet they found. And they also mention the 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 Jiridin blade. Uh, Varen says, "Don't use it for the time being because it would literally drain the life force of the user if it's used by the wrong person." but it is really powerful if it's used correctly. So that kind of gets people to back off from the idea of using it. Kind of disappoints Gesh because he was all about getting, a, getting his hands on something really awesome. And so the group, they decide to kind of camp out nearby, watch the estate, and just in case, maybe Estenius might head somewhere other than the quarry because, uh, again, they want to pursue him, you know, and interrogate him some more. And they bounce, bounce some ideas back and forth because they realize they have this really rare blade on their hands that people are going to say, you guys are too poor to own something like that. So Merrick decides to run the blade back to, to the tavern, hands it over to Aaron, says, Aaron, don't open this, and hide it in one of, uh, you know, in Dane or Vachette's bodies. Aaron says she can do it, uh, probably put it in Vachette's body because, well, Dane's short. <laughs> yeah. So Merrick gives her some, you know, some extra gold to make up for the unique nature of the job that <laughs> that they've given her. So he returns back to the party. After daybreak, they can see the estates waking up. They don't see anyone leaving. And by like 10 a.m., they realize nobody's really left. And they realize, you know, Astenius probably realizes he's been robbed. And, you know, so he's putting things on lockdown. They debate about, you know, maybe they should go in directly, just to, you know, and just challenge him outright. But they're kind of, they're worried that he might be one of the demon princes, and they just, they'd rather not get nuked immediately, you know, just right out the gate. So they call Varen, and and they arrange for Merrick to meet with one of his runners to pass on the sealed letter. You know, maybe Varen can read it, use his evidence against Astenius in the Masonry Guild. And they also arrange for some magical gear for Ty and Moonstar. Uh, Varen's going to pay off the remaining, the remaining 300 gold for the staff of the Woodlands that the Moonstar commissioned. And he's going to tie up with a Pearl of Power. Moonstar decides to transform into a horse, take Merrick to meet Varen's courier, go a little bit faster. And after they leave, Ty starts noticing that the patrols have uh, thinned out considerably from, the, from what uh, Veritas's papers uh, say is usually the norm. Uh, it kind of seems like the other patrols are being rotated inside, but they're not coming back out. And Ty doesn't, you know, and they kind of debate about going inside, but Ty doesn't want to go in solo by himself because he doesn't have Merrick and Moonstar backing him up with their firepower. And about an hour later, there are no more patrols on the estate. They're still paranoid, but they're still worried about what's going on, so they decide to hold off until Moonstar and Merrick get back. And once they've returned, Ty, you know, he casts some visibility on himself and Merrick. Uh, they sneak in, and when they get into the museum room, they find a, a huge amount of blood smeared across one of the walls leading out of the room. They follow this trail. There's gouges in the walls, blood everywhere. You know, it's just a mess. And as they make their way through their home, they get into the kind of the great room of uh, of the estate. And there, hanging from the ceiling, are several corpses impaled. Uh, the chests are ripped open. 
from what they can see, it's several of the guards and a man and presumably members of his family. Uh, Ty and Merrick figure it's Astenia since they, because they never met him. And on the floor of this great room, in blood, is painted the symbol of the demon prince Bastet. Uh, the blood's blackened a bit, almost like it's been charred. And Ty recognizes it as meaning uh, uh, the the symbols being kind of a gateway. Uh, he can't he can't really tell if it's been used for to enter or to leave, but he's guessing it was probably used to leave. Uh, Ty and Merrick they search through the rest of the house. The library is empty, uh, but they notice a lot of tomes about demonology. Uh, one in particular details demon rituals concerning portals that's been heavily heavily used, and most of the other books are pretty benign and normal, and not demon related. Uh, the other rooms that they find, they don't really find much. But in the kitchen, they find the family cook has been impaled by a, a chain, but he's still alive. Uh, he can't really say anything because the chain's kind of going through his chest and, you know, through one of his lungs, which you kind of want one of those if you're going to say, you know, anything besides screaming. Uh, so Ty and Merrick, they teleport back to the party, book him in, in there to heal the cook. Moonstar heals him to get the chain out of him. And unfortunately, the cook is not a great source of information. He doesn't really know what happened. Uh, he was just, you know, working that morning, you know, uh, you know, uh, having wrapped up breakfast, working on lunch, when uh, these demonic creatures just came out of nowhere butchering people. Just these kind of red, angry demons with uh, sentient chains, you know, just killing everybody. Uh, unfortunately, the cook doesn't really know anything of Astenius' involvement with anything demonic. Uh, he knows that there is a larder room downstairs that's new. Somebody could be hiding there. Uh, he, you know, Stenius had always taken late-night meetings and had the servants leave, which was a little strange. But he also knew better than to ask questions of noblemen in their dealings. Uh, the party you know, tells the cook to leave and not to pass on word of what's happened there. And the cook says he's glad to leave all this behind as a bad memory. The party, heads, the party heads over to the new larder room, where they find two guards and a war mage hiding. And you know, once they calm down the, the three of them and say, hey, we're not demons, we're not here to kill you, uh, they start talking. Uh, apparently the morning started out just as usual, um, and you know, Stenius was planning to go out to the quarry like planned. But as he was getting ready, uh, something got him kind of agitated and worked up, and he locked himself in his office for hours. And, you know, while he's, and after a while, the demons came and started slaughtering everybody. Now, the war mage, he'd put up the magical defenses in the house himself. So, you know, he got the, he got the warning that these, uh, these demons had showed up. So he was able to warn the guards and, you know, get them to hide in the larder room because he knew that they could not take on these, these chain demons themselves. Now, he'd always had some suspicions that Stenius was involved in, with the occult in some capacity, but... Quite frankly, he was paid too much to really ask any further questions. Uh, when the demons appeared, he knew better than to stick around. And he says he's going to return to the mage guild and spread word about this intrusion. Uh, you know, put everybody on notice. Uh, the party tells the war mage to watch out. The masonry guild has definitely been infiltrated. And the war mage, you know, realizes, hey, I should show you something in the, ma in the master bedroom there. So they run up there. They run through the closet and they find a safe. And the war mage had created, created the safe, so he's able to open it for him without any trouble. And sitting inside is a set of acolyte robes, identical to you know the, all the acolytes they've been encountering over the past, past while. 
and underneath it is another amulet, uh, kind of similar to the amulet that they stole uh, the previous night, but this one seems to be kind of more of a, you know, less of, uh, one of magic, but more of just kind of a symbol of what, of who you are. Uh, it had a, in this particular amulet, amulet, it had a circle with another circle inside of it that had eight spokes. At this point, you know, Cecil decides to update Varen because he's, uh, you know, their celestial sponsor. And Varen explains that this amulet means that there's a council of demons there, which is really bad because it means demons who are not the most cooperative bunch in the world had decided to set their differences together to work together. He's almost done deciphering the sealed letter, and he asks, he says, asks him to bring the, the robes and the amulet to him, meet him at his estate. And then they hang up. And before they leave, you know, they, well, they are adventurers and they need money to live on. So they sack the place. Uh, they loot it for whatever they can find. And they're able to find it uh, between, you know, just pieces of gold and gems and value, valuables. Uh, stuff worth about uh, nine, 900 gold pieces. So they split it five ways. Since, again, Kel Idon is passed out drunk, hungover back at the tavern. Yeah, it's a major hangover. <clears throat> they head out to, to Varen's estate. Uh, it takes them a while, but he gets there. But they all get there. He's really appreciative, appreciative of their work. And he brings out a coffer of 5,000 gold pieces as a reward for their good deeds and their assistance so far that they, again, split five ways. And at the, by this point, Varen has deciphered the letter. It's addressed to the head of the Masonry Guild, uh, one Blaine Greystone. And in it, he's referred to as my dark master. That that's pretty good confirmation that he's probably a demon prince. Varen still has, still has his suspicions that other guild heads are demon princes as well. Uh, you know, but he still needs to investigate more and figure out who. But he does agree. But as they kind of catch him up, and you know, they hear and they and he hears word about the subsidian shipment. Uh, you know, he definitely agrees that needs to be stopped because. Obsidian is one of the core materials used in building these hell portals. Uh, he doesn't like the idea of blowing them up because that would send, you know, all the, you know, all the demonic forces into hiding and possibly causing them to scatter uh, their 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 resources where they're trying to get stuff from and making it even harder to stop them. Ideally, he he wants to try to capture the the obsidian shipment and use that as leverage to you know find out the full scope of their plans. Uh, so, after discussing some more about the different uh, guilds to investigate, uh, the group decides that they'll head back to the tavern and talk with Erin to see if she can provide information about some of the higher-ups at her guild, because Furrier's guild is one of the guilds that they're investigating. And uh, in the meantime, they're going to be on the lookout for another amulet of hiding alignment and who's wearing them. Uh, Varen says that, you know, at this point only him and Donovan are the only ones not wearing them, but most have some sort of uh, anti-scrying amulet, scrying amulet to protect themselves from competitors and spies. Then uh, the problem is that these amulets are all pretty similar in design, so you'd have to be pretty close up close to examine it to tell the differences. Uh, the party takes their leave. They head back to the Crooked Lantern and start talking with Aaron about Batter Guild, and she suggests you know talking starting at the top of the guild, uh, an amorist shadow step. Uh, she says he's pretty hard to get a hold of though. He, she recommends going through his concubine, uh, Emerelda Leafsong. Uh, she's more accessible. But Aaron does warn that 
Emerelda kind of hates that term, concubine. Apparently she's caused quite a rift between Amaris and his official wife, Galadriel Shadowstep. You know, she... You know, there's just uh, issues there. Uh, Aaron says she hasn't really noticed anything suspicious in terms of operational policies changing or anything like that. But she does say, you know, Galadriel's definitely the jealous, the jealous sort. You know, she and Amaris were never the happy, never, you know, the world's happiest couple. But Emerald definitely stole his heart, which kind of drives Galadriel crazy. She recommends using that jealousy to, would be to to get the information that they want. And at that point, our adventure paused uh, because it was getting late and everybody needs to go home and get some sleep. So I hope this catches everybody up. And yeah, and uh, I think we will adventure again soon. Take care, guys.